Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alon Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Tarek Hegi, an Egyptian liberal author, political thinker, and international petroleum strategist. Hegi is one of Egypt's more prominent authors on the subject of Egypt's need for political reform. His extensive writings advocate the values of modernity, democracy, tolerance, and women's rights in the Middle East, advancing them as universal values essential to the region's progress. He has lectured at universities throughout the world and various international institutions and think tanks, such as the Heritage Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the Council on Foreign Relations. In today's episode, Alan and Tarek discuss the impacts of Islamic extremism within the Muslim world itself, Islamophobia and Muslim immigration in the West, and what can be done in the Arab and Muslim worlds to combat terrorism and extremist thoughts. Well, thank you. First of all, Tarek, I want to really thank you so much for taking the time. Um, so, you know, this subject matter that you suggested, um, Islam, extremism, terrorism, is obviously something <clears throat> so it's been and continued to be the talk of the town you know, just about everywhere we go. And, and there's tremendous, in my view, tremendous amount of misconception and misperception as to the root, the causes of Islamic extremism, um, how to deal with it. Uh, and much of the views taken is really based on, I would say, rather shallow understanding of this uh, whole phenomenon. Uh, in anticipation, of course, of this discussion, I, I looked at some of the statistics just to give us some idea about what's actually happening. Uh, between 2011 and 2017, there were nearly 71,000 terrorist attacks, right? 61 of them happened in Arab states, 61,000 of them in Arab countries. 51,000 of that happened in the Middle East. The other interesting number, between 2015 and July, uh, July 16, there were a total of 658 European and American killed through terrorist activities. When in fact, for the, during the same period, which is a startling number, 28,000 Muslims were killed by Muslims in, through terrorist activities. That was more than 50 times as many. So there is, for this reason I'm saying, there's that much perception in terms of, in the West in particular, you know, the whole idea of the Islamophobia. Uh, how do you, because you're as a scholar, and you're not second to none when it comes on this, this particular subject, uh, how do you attribute that? Why is it that we in the West here feel that, you know, the, that every act of terror is committed against the West there's very little discussion about how much Muslim, in fact, killing Muslim, or why is that? So I want you to take it from there, and then we can continue the. Um... As far as I, as I understood you, the picture is as follows, according to what you said, that we have a problem, terrorism, but it is not, according to what you said, addressed to Western objective objects only yes but does not deny that we have a problem of course yeah we do have a problem that we need to tackle but if we say it is only islamist aiming at attacking western no we are wrong of course 
attack more Muslims than Westerns. But this has throughout history, I mean, the history of Muslim societies witnessed a great deal of violence. And the two sides were Muslims. So I believe that I, I, I buy what you said. I take it as, as very critical data. But it tells me only that the exaggeration is related to the target. But the act itself is with us. We do have it. We have to look into it and being addressed to more Muslims than Westerns, uh, in my view, does not change the, the, the problem we are facing, that we have hatred translated into act. That's right. Whether the hatred is, is addressed to a Western, to an, a Muslim, it's very important, allies, but it doesn't change the fact that we have a hatred that in converted into an act. Now, my question now, and again, this is probably on the exaggerated level, but nevertheless, I want to ask you, do you feel, because that's many, many, again, in the West, among the intellectuals community as well, feel that as if there is an implied or direct connection between Islam and terrorism, as if terrorism is a byproduct of the religion, of Islam as a religion. Uh, I personally, obviously, I don't, do not personally buy that, uh, buy into that agreement. What's your take on it? I mean, I lived in Egypt of the 50s and the 60s, and Muslims were more Mediterranean than anything else. Okay? Yeah. They were very similar to Cypriots, Greek, Spanish. If in my lifetime, which is nothing in history, I saw different Islams, an Islam that looks today Arabian, nomadic, and a bit violent, and Islam that looked to me in the 60s. I went to the university in the 60s, so I was a grown-up and I was already uh, a reader, a serious reader since that time. The, the Muslims looked to me at the time like the Israelis, like the Cypriots, like the Greek. This tells us that we don't have the right to, to fix the idea and say a Muslim is by definition is a terrorist. History tells us that Muslims until the, the 70s were not and tells us about mistakes made by the West. If you allow me to say a few things about this thing. Well, of course, yes. In 1979, the Soviet army entered Afghanistan. Two key players, USA under Carter's administration and Saudi Arabia under King Khalid, agreed to create Al-Mujahideen, the jihadist movement. The jihadist movement was formed, sent to Afghanistan to fight the Soviet army. What did this also produce, apart from the defeat of the Soviets? It produced Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Exactly. Produced Osama bin Laden. So any simplification is wrong, okay? 
of course. We have factors, many factors. Some of them to, be, to blame the Muslims about and some of them also to blame the West about. Do we have any doubt? Because I lived half of my life in the UK. I saw what makes me absolutely certain that the immigration was never perfect. In order to have a chief labor, wrong people were allowed in, okay? Yes. Blaming one side is a big mistake. Can anybody say that today France has, has a major problem, France? The immigrants are not hundreds of thousands, they are millions. Of course, yes. Still of them are enemies of the value system of France. Is France partially responsible? Of course. Why they one day wanted cheap labor. So they didn't do their homework twice. What do I mean by twice? Number one, when they allowed the wrong immigrants to come. And number two, when they made it also difficult for the ones who came to integrate. They live in certain parts of the cities. Is this is healthy to have from North Africa or West Af Africa? And then they live in an environment that doesn't have anything to do with France. And then they say they are not integrated. Of course, they are not integrated. And this problem, by the way, doesn't exist that way in USA. And we have to study this. You know, you're, you're right. It doesn't exist much in the United States. Um, but going back to the, you know, recently, because this is very important that you mentioned France in particular, very recently, President Macron was talking about reforming the Muslim community. Uh, as if, uh, from his perspective, that what is going to take to reduce violence, to reduce Islamism, to reduce terrorism, we're going to have to undertake significant steps toward reforming uh, the Muslim community. Do you buy into this argument that can you, in fact, reform Islam or Muslims in a given uh, community, specifically, say, living in France, versus, say, community Muslim living in an Arab country? is either mistaken or naive. Right. One of the two, either he's totally mistaken, he doesn't know, or he, good intention, but it will never work this way. If you have 15 million people from North Africa who are living miserably and looked at with very respect and looked at as machines, parts of the machine, of the production machine. So how are you going to do what he said? The best that could be done is to have what we call business, a business plan, to integrate the young generations through education, uh, work opportunities, and, and, and life conditions, but to look back and uh, reform what a phenomenon that took decades to exist is a dream. It, it is nothing a dream. I think the best he can do is to work out a plan for the future. 
land that makes the sons and daughters of these immigrants part of the society. By the way, because I live in England and I travel a lot in Europe, the magnitude of the in problem in England is less than in France. This is, this is true. However, do you, when I mean I've been in England, I lived, I, you know, I studied in England. Uh, but also, if you go to London, you go to London, the, you see the, the, the Muslim, the Arab community, Muslim community is pretty much segregated in different parts of it. They're all folk, you know, um, located in big area. And is, do you think, and I agree with you that the level of integration in England is a little better than that in France. But still, we nevertheless, we still see significant discrimination against Muslims and Arabs in general in England as well, albeit to a lesser degree. Uh, again, one again to what you attribute that versus what's happening in France. I, number one, I totally agree that we we have the problem in France and England in different degrees. Yes, in England is obviously less than, but but the problem is there, and in some cities like Birmingham and and Bradford, the magnitude of the problem is bigger. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I think we are uh, here dealing with, with a cultural problem. I don't want to be very hostile, but let me say to you, I said yesterday in an interview here, I said, when somebody who occupied all of the third world only 70 years ago and did what France did in Algeria and what Portugal did in what used to be the Congo, okay? Yes. Comes after 70 years and cries because human rights are breached in my country. I have the full right to say, please, very difficult for me to believe a Western saying, uh, but, but here I'm not talking about individuals, I'm talking about states. Okay? Yes. When, when Western states cry, on human rights breaching in the third world. People don't take it, by the way, seriously. People of the third world, yeah? They have the right not to take it seriously because if you were killing on large scales in 1960 in Algeria and Congo, today you are extremely hurt because of human rights. I can't believe it. We are human beings. Yeah. We don't develop that fast. So, also, in the third world, there is a big question mark about the credibility value. For me, I find it very that values as such are doubted, but people have sometimes the right to doubt them. What would you say to an Algerian that his father was burned in 1962, that France is very sad because human rights are breached today in Algeria? Difficult to believe. Well, of course, there's a high level of hypocrisy as, as far as the, the Algerians are concerned. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. There is a or Machiavellian use of the word, yeah? You are using it to put, I mean, like in this discussion yesterday, somebody added, how can I believe that the American deep state that dealt with the marshals of South America for decades are today after human rights in all of these countries. So let, let us go back. 
the, the Western countries welcomed, did welcome immigrants to come and work simply because they needed them as workers. As labor, yes. As labor, and, this, and, and we add as a cheap labor, okay? Yes, yes. On to do what Macron said, handle, handle it from this angle. If you don't handle it from this angle, you will never be seen fair. Can they do it? Theoretically, yes. Would they do it? I'm not sure. What, what can I say about Belgium? Belgium might theoretically be ruled by Islamic people through democratic mechanisms. People will not have to have a coup d'etat in Belgium. Yeah. They will continue to grow demography, demographically the way they are doing, 3% per annum, while the European ones are below 1% per annum. Right. At the end, we have to see the end of this. Unless you do something before the end of it, actually, I'm talking now about Europe. Europe is in a problem, yeah? That's right, yeah. I mean, there is that fear, of course, of concern that there's a growing Muslim Arab population. It certainly is disproportionate to the population of growth within the, the European community. There's no doubt. And that, and you know, I hear this, you know, some of them talk bluntly about it. If we don't do something about it, we could be overwhelmed within 50, 60, 70 years. They may not be a majority then, but they have significant percentage of the population. They will be inevitably, they will have to be inevitably part and parcel of the political process, of, of the governing process, I should say. So there are that kind of fear. But then again, what you are saying is, the problem is being created by the French, by the British, you know, inviting laborers to come, cheap laborers to work, and they did not, they did not provide them with equal rights. And that's today, to continue, these conditions continue to exist today. Do you feel that they are now then between the hammer and the heart? Yes, they need to take reforms. They need to do something in order to alleviate the poverty, the pressure, the misery of, of these communities. Suppose they have the means to do so. I'm talking about economic, because eventually, I mean, it's going to take significant amount of money to be able to do that. Do you, if, if they have that, do you think they have the will or the interest in doing that? Or is there some kind of sinister uh, thinking about what's behind it? Would they prefer to keep them suppressed and perhaps deal with the occasional terrorist activities or they would be prepared to, to open the society, give them everything they need, and make sure that I, stay, I stand on an equal footing with the rest of the French or the British people. Do you see that? Do you feel that governments, they are facing that kind of dilemma? Number one, it's, it's, it's a brilliant question. And the answer is in the question. <laughs> I mean, the way you, 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 you phrase the question is, is brilliant. I, I tend to believe, and I hate that I think this way, but this is my most honest feeling and thing, that they will continue in, the, in Europe to deal with it without going to the roots and will deal with the problem on the surface 
when there is a big incident, they will react, but this would not eliminate the problem. And I, I must say that this demographic dimension that we both touched on is extremely important. Yeah. And it touches other like Israel as well. Oh, absolutely, more so than there than any other place for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I do. If you now see the pattern Western Europe, which is both of the right wing parties, if if this continues, it tells us that we are heading to confrontation, not to treatment of causes. Exactly. And, and we do have this pattern, this trend of growing right wing. Look at the right wing in France over 50 years in the elections. They have been growing steadily. Yeah? They have, yes. Lady, the lady there and her father before her. Yeah. yeah. And, and this tells us that we are heading to confrontation, not to solution. I, I, I'm not very optimistic. About, about what we are talking about. I, I, I go to the areas you indirectly refer to in London and Bradford and Birmingham and see that all institutions are very much on the surface, nothing fundamental. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. You know, in your writing, in your, uh, you, you are, suggesting that to, to tackle extremism, you have to take two, uh, two courses. One, to deal with the extremists with significant level of force on the one hand, but you also now to have to intellectually, you have to deal with the, with the extremism on, in terms of the narrative. That is how you approach them, how you, how you counter their narrative on intellectual level. So you have to take, from your perspective, you have two tracks approach. One, you have to deal with force for those who are basically hating, despising the West, and they are going to, will do everything just to, to hurt, to kill, to maim, versus the, actually the vast majority who are not that violent, but we need in this case to change the narrative toward it. Intellectually, they have a different kind of discourse to be able to change that. That is on the one side, if we want to look at it from in the West. What it is that can be done in the Arab countries. That is, what kind of reform, what kind of progress need to be made in the Arab countries in order to reverberate or have effect of what's happening to Muslim and Arab minorities in the European community? So two tracks to your question that I'm posing for you now. I, I, I fully agree that we should now move from the West to the kitchen of, of the problem. Kitchen yes, that's, that's what I guess. It's very important. I was thinking of this today, and I thought that you will be touching on this. In the entire area from, I would go even beyond the world, the Arab world, from Morocco to Bangladesh, we have the two pro, uh, issues. The kitchen, intellectual kitchen that produces the idea and the application of the idea. Yes. An imam in a mosque 
in Bangladesh or Egypt or Sudan, and also even in, 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 in France or in England, that talks about jihad as the most important thing in Islam, and it is your easiest as an individual vehicle to paradise, is to practice. And then he explains that what jihad means in terms of fighting the enemies of Islam. So we have this part, and then we have the, the execution. I hope I am not wrong in saying that in the area I refer to from Bangladesh to Morocco, the efforts are exerted in relation to the execution, not the kitchen of the... Yeah, yeah. Very, very little has been done. Very little is being done. And I believe that in all, this is much easier. Of course, it is easier, but not the, the sport path. It is much easier to arrest people and put them in jail. It is much difficult to talk to people and change. So what, what, what has to be done is to make a balance between fighting the act and fighting the idea. And we agree that there's very little being done with regard to fighting the ideas. So what should be done is related to the following. You need to have a vision. We need to have a vision that states that our target is to work on the mentality of people, the collective mind of the people, and make them see that we can be the year 2022, and meanwhile Muslims. There is no contradiction between being a Muslim and living your age. This involves education and religious discourse. Religious discourse was a catastrophe because of the role of Saudi Arabia until the recent changes in Saudi Arabia. There are changes, but for that, the financing of Taliban, of Osama bin Laden, of Pakistan, of Afghanistan, relied to a very far extent on the Saudi money. Saudi Arabia was doing this, this where, and America was fully aware of that. Mm -hmm. it, yes. it wasn't a secret. And I don't think that it was, there was any attempt to stop it. We know that Al-Qaeda started in Sudan at the beginning and moved to Pakistan and Afghanistan. And the role of Saudi Arabia of that time is impossible to deny. So do we have an educational system, systems in these countries that could help us? The answer is no. Why I say the answer is let us go to number. Today, while we are talking, there are 25 million students in Egypt in all institutions of education. 20% of them in Islamic education. Does mm -hmm. Egypt 20% of 25 million people? Yes, yes. Of course not. And do you know, life is very ambiguous, my friends. The person who converted Al-Azhar from religious university 
to a global university that has medicine, engineering, agriculture, science, is Gamal Abdel Nasser. For me, I cannot understand. Nasser, with all of his defects, was perceived to be secular, like mm -hmm. Sadiq al Assad. They, they look to us as secular people, yeah? Yes, yes, yeah. Egypt has been looked upon that exactly that way. But the secular president of Egypt converted Al Azhar from a religious university to a dinosauric educational organization that gives a degree in medicine, in engineering, in pharmaceutical studies, in agriculture, in science. Right, in right, right. Uh, look at mistakes. Look at the magnitude of the mistake. Five million Egyptians are studying today under the word Islamic education. We don't need that. We, we need, we need, we actually don't need. I was many years ago a member in the Council of Egypt, Abu Dhabi. And we studied many educational systems. And the top three in the world, people, to far extent agree and endorse what I'm going to say. Finland, Singapore, and Japan have the best curricula, curricula in the world, yeah? In these countries, 20% of those who enter primary schools reach universities, 20%. Yeah. In Egypt, it's much more than this, much, much more, yeah? We talk about 50% of those who enter first year of primary school. There is no country that can succeed with, with this. And you will have other problems. You will not have a working class. Yeah? That's right, you yes. You won't have good carpenters and, and, and. So we, we need to look at this from educational standpoint. And there is a lot to be said, a lot. Even if somebody says, at the end, Fanatic Islamic ideas will continue just fine. We don't mind if they continue to exist as long as they exist within 1%, not 80% of people, yeah? That's right, then, but let's go back to, to the, the, the example you cited in Egypt. And now our 25 million are being education, five, five million of them studying Islamic education. And it is under the secular government, led by President Sisi, obviously. Um, is he concerned about that? Uh, oh, very is he, what, Then if he's concerned, what is he doing about it? What can he do about it? Okay, I will say to you what he has been talking about, and it is the first time these words were used in Egypt. He said that the future of Egypt is related to tajdeed al-khitab al-dini, modernization of religious... Um, yeah, of religion, of you know, khitab al-dini, yeah. Religion. Modernization yes. of, of religion. Uh, yes. they are, they, they, we call it, they call it here reforming religion, reforming it. So that is, uh, we'll have to, religion have to basically be separating clearly between politics and religion as you obviously, and that's how it should be, but so reforming it so that... Religious discourse. Yeah. Okay, but let me explain to you that 
he has been opposed by the educational institutions as hell. And they refuse that there is a need for that. They refuse it. Of course, without this religious discourse, their control will diminish. There is a relationship between the magnitude of the control and the religious discourse. And I, I believe that he knows that until this moment of time, the Egyptian street will side with Al-Azhar, not with him. I, 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 I hate to say it. But, but why, why do you think is that? Why do you think is that when in fact, are they, how, how much are they benefiting? For, let, me, let me go back the, for a second to the Muslim Brotherhood and the, the reason they were elected to, you know, uh, became, came to power. By and large, because as we know from the study of Muslim Brotherhood, they've been basically a social institution providing health, education, economic support, and the public basically thought because that's what they needed. They needed jobs, they needed opportunities, they need to make some money. So here an Islamic organization actually was able to provide that when in fact the state was Absolutely. unable to do so. So what he, can he do now in order to change the dynamics? You can replace the roles, but it will take time. The Egyptian mindset has become to far extent religious. If you come today and say, we want to do, a, I myself call for things like family law, similar to Kamal Atatürk family law, okay? A family law similar to Bourguiba in Tunisia, people themselves, women themselves reject. Religion is a very dangerous tool. Exactly. It may say to a woman, it is unfair that you take half of your brother. She, def she defends the rule. <laughs> Why? Because the brainwash religion is the most powerful tool to control people. To the fence, when somebody in the middle of a discussion brings religion in the discussion, realize he is aiming at controlling you. <laughs> Exactly. No, I, I fully agree with you on that. Um, uh, let, let me just go back now to, because you are, you are one of the strong advocates, that is uh, education is obviously necessary to begin to change mindset. Then you need to confront those who are extraordinary militant, are irredeemable, let's call them the irredeemable ones. They're going to have to deal with them separately. But the larger picture, obviously, is the, the, the socioeconomic condition that exists in just about every Arab country. That is why the youth are becoming radicalized. What needs to be done? That is, if they lack jobs opportunity, if they lack uh, upward mobility, if they lack healthcare system, if they lack... So when they hear an imam preaching the gospel that if we do A, B, C, and D, you're going to go in heaven, you're going to have all you need. How, that is the problem. It's, you have yourself advocated. We've got to deal with the core issue, that is the socioeconomic condition. Uh, where, where are we going with that? Is there any focus from your perspective? 
number one, I totally agree. You, we, if we do groups, factors, material ones, and let us call it the hardware of the of the subject, and moral ones, the software, hardware, job, salary, hospital, education, and the software, curricula of the education, the, the culture of the society. You have to work on both of them. Exactly. If you work only on the, on, on, on the software components, it won't work. Also, if you work on the material component, it won't work because Osama bin Laden was not a son of a poor family. Yeah. Exactly. So it tells us that you have to, to make the balance between the two things. The materialistic components of the society or elements or factors and the software of society. And you have to make progress, modernization in all of them. Humanity has been paying, continue to pay very high price if we continue believe that the maximum we can do is to arrest a terrorist. Yeah? Yeah. It is required, but totally insufficient. Of course it's insufficient. So now the question is, you know, where do we go from here? Now we obviously agree, you know, they need to, to have two, three tracks to approach. We're talking, you know, obviously enlightenment education is every major factor, confronting the redeemable, like we've said before, uh, by force, whatever means necessary. And then, of course, you have to provide in terms of opportunities. Uh, now, when we, when I look at the, uh, the, uh, the Arab world and some, not only the Arab world, Muslim, but take like um, countries like Turkey, take Turkey, countries like Iran. What we are seeing now, Islamic extremism is rather on the rise. Erdogan, you know, abandoned pretty much what Ataturk has been advocating. Uh, today, uh, Erdogan, as Islamic as he can be, and he is um, uh, he is using Islam as a tool by which to, for example, uh, revive elements of the Ottoman Empire. He is not able to provide, but he's now using Islam as a tool, uh, and he's not alone. So instead of receding, instead of diminishing the influence of religion and extremism, some, which is somewhat built into the religion, we are seeing now a new um, rise, the, the, it is rising rather than diminishing. Uh, so how, how do you deal with that? Again, Turkey, take Turkey as an example. Actually, this touches on uh, a very sensitive uh, subject to me. I was a great admirer of both the two names I mentioned, Kamal Atatürk and Al-Habib Burqiba in Tunisia. These people went far away in modernizing. In Tunisia is the only Muslim country, with the exception of Turkey, that it is a crime to marry more than one woman criminalizing a marriage of more than one wife. The, the inheritance is like a turkey. Woman is like man. I, I was personally in a problem seeing that these 
cases, I wouldn't say failed, but collapsed, partially collapsed. When I see a prime minister in Turkey that is an Islam, and for 10 years, the conductor in Tunisia was the Ghanoush, yes. the Muslim brothers. Yeah. For me, as Tariq, I feel very sad and ask myself, what went wrong? And my answer after years of thinking is, when this happened, my order from above, we ended up with this partial collapse. It didn't happen through an upbringing of mentalities. That's why people went to the box and elected Erdogan, okay? It was done because Kamal Ataturk wanted it to be done. It was done because Borgeba wanted it to be done. And there is nothing wrong with that, but they shouldn't have stopped at that. They should have worked systematically and scientifically on having a modern citizen, somebody who believes in, in these values of modernity. It didn't happen. And everybody used to talk in the 70s and 80s about the difference between Istanbul and the countryside where one of them was in the 20th century and one of them. So what we need to learn that also, if we have a stick in our hand and tell people as, as of tomorrow, you are all secular. We might make them secular tomorrow, but not forever. Yeah? Exactly. If chance they have to go back, they will go back. Especially if it goes with what you refer to social conditions. In every mosque in Egypt, the, the Muslim brothers were doing what you referred to, a clinic and a school. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And this is very close to the hearts of people. Yeah, Exactly. exactly. Why? Children and their brains. So I believe that in, in, in Turkey, I don't think it will go to what Erdogan wants it to happen. He is canceling the heritage of Ataturk partially, but he didn't do it totally. And until this moment of time, he cannot uh, ban alcoholic drinks. He cannot allow uh, men to marry more than a wife and so on. But if he carries on in power, and a successor from the same school carries on, they will be able to have a public opinion supporting the reverse. But I want to take this particular example of, of Turkey itself. And now uh, going back, you know, next year is going to be the 100th anniversary of the Turkish Republic. Uh, Erdogan would like to preside over this huge celebration as he is now the new, the, the new Atatürk, so to speak. In the interim, of course, he moved Turkey, became made more and more and more Islamist. And we don't see, as of now, sort of an apparent uh, successor, so to speak. I'm hoping there will be no successor who will follow his own, his, his, his path. Uh, we really hope so. 
the Turkey is just one as an example. Uh, he obviously shifted. I dealt with the Turks for many, many years, you know, until I saw the shift and I shifted my position as well as started to write and criticize intensely what the Turkish government is doing to this very day. If he does not find a successor that will continue with his religious uh, approach, do you think that it can be reversed or the, the, the AK party is, is already too well entrenched into the Turkish society, Turkish mindset, that they're going to be impossible to reverse. I believe that after Erdogan, Turkey will recover a great part of Ataturk heritage. You mean if, if the secular, secular um, yeah, state? Yeah. But this has to do with other their relationship with Europe, with the USA, they are a NATO member, yeah? They were aiming at being part of the EU. And I always thought that this is a very tricky area of, of thinking, yeah? Is it, is it good to see Turkey part of the EU or not? I, I, it's a very positive subject, yeah? I don't think that's going to ever happen, as far as I'm Exactly, exactly. It will never happen. Exactly. And for cultural reasons, before economic reasons. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I mean, uh, it's a different kind of conversation in terms of Turkey's EU relationship and all of that. I mean, there's a tremendous tension between Turkey and the European community nowadays, even within the NATO itself, whether in fact Turkey does should belong to NATO. But I want to shift back to our your your area that you see you your so right so eloquently about it, and you specifically in your book as well on this subject. Now uh, we have this uh, issue the, the phenomenon of terrorism. It is linked uh, directly and sometimes indirectly, of course, to Islam, and and uh, it is growing rather than diminishing, which is unfortunate. What would you say do today? What would you suggest to, to any Arab government? You have to do A, B, T, A, B, C, and D, that it is realistic, not a suggestion that is not going to go necessarily anywhere. But if you were to ask by any of these governments, this is what you need to do and from a realistic perspective. What sort of advice would you give them in order to mitigate extremism, to reduce the level uh, of terrorism, which is in fact Muslim killing Muslim, like we've said in this statistic, than any other places, and and should that should that come to some kind of a, a slow, or gradual end as in 10, 15, 20 years, or as we're going to see the continuing trend today, which is escalating rather than diminishing? I I, I wrote about that extensively last year, and I wrote an open letter to. President Sisi saying to him that you are focusing on the what I call the, the hardware of the society, doing a lot of work in modernizing the villages, the infrastructure, the roads, the, the electricity, 
there is a lot of work that was done on this side, including the move of hundreds of thousands of people from very miserable living conditions to modern buildings and, and, and. But I said that all of this, though great, is totally insufficient. We have two things that we did little on. Modern education and religious discourse. I need the religion, the, the educational curricula to help us to, to have particular society. But let me look at the other one. The religious discourse. Egypt has 210,000 mosques. 2,000, let's say, uh, uh, let me say it again 200,000 mosques. Yes. If we multiply 200,000 by the number of the weeks, we have two weeks. So we end up with a number between 10 and 11 million. Yes. 10 and 11 million what? Khutb yes. al-Juma. The front prayer discourse. That's right. How can I compete to this with my articles and TV programs? That's the point. That is exactly the point. Unless these people themselves join me, I'm wasting my time. 11 billion per year discourses, okay? Yeah. And that's 11 million sermons given every single week, uh, to, you know, uh, consistently, and very, with, with quite limited, as far as I know, uh, it's not, um, imams pretty much still say pretty much what they want to say, uh, a little bit careful, but they're, they're still preaching, what they want to preach. They are still preaching the rules of beating your wife. Yes. yes. Yeah. Their, uh, transplantation of organs is halal, allowed or not. Th yeah. Things, I mean, take, to, to be precise, taking us to the mentality of the seventh century, okay? I, I mean, exactly, like, like you said, the Azhar, uh, you know, refused to allow um, uh, divorce, verbal divorce. That is, to this day, still continue to exist, even in Egypt. How? So, so, so how do you change that? Given what you just said, 11 million sermons are given every single week. How do you compete with that? When we, when we talk about reform, when we talk about intellectual discourse. Yeah, in, in order that people understand what we are saying, 11 million events to each of them to a number between 200 and 1,000. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Unless CC succeeds in modernizing the religious speeches and the religious education, we are wasting our time. The, the volume is too much. Exactly. I mean, when, 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 the, when the TV screen shows me two meetings, one in Ramallah and one in Gaza. Although I'm not that happy with Ramallah, but it looks like 
being in the 20th century. First no, century. This is a big difference. I agree, 100%. As if I am taken to the 16th century. <laughs> yes, yes. What happens when you have a different discourse? Yeah. Right. And, and we, we can do a lot in the short term with uh, through education and more importantly religious discourse i mean the whole idea of l l l let me give you another example we in in egypt for the 25 million pupils and students they go through primarily preparatory and secondary school and then university they give them novels in to read. Can you imagine until recently all the novels were Islamic? Oh, yes. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, you have a history like ancient Egypt. <laughs> you don't teach them anything related to the Middle Kingdom, kings like Ramses, like City. No, you teach them who conquered North Africa. So, we are shooting our the foot, as English say. Yeah. We when we allow uh, the Egyptian student to read about Khalid ibn al Walid and not about Ramses the Second, and say, what happened to your identity? What happened to our identity is very very clear. <laughs> Take I am. Uh, an Egyptian who was born 1950. Okay. If you address me in 1969, when I was at the third school at the university, as an Arab, I would have explained to you that I am not. Okay. Yes. Today goes without saying. <laughs> the whole is Arab Republic of Egypt. <laughs> right. yeah. So look at what happened to identity. In, in a very short time. For me in 1970, the word Arab means somebody from Arabia, okay? Yes, yeah. Some, I went to the Hilton Hotel, I found many Arabs. He meant Saudis, okay? Yes. So today, it is not so, identity has been changed. A lot of work is required, but even if it looks impossible, it is much honorable to work on it, whether it will work or not. We can't surrender, yeah? Yeah, not surrendering, but in Iran, I'm, I'm always look for the real, you know, there's no question we have to try, but what is the prospect? Egypt is a good example. What is the prospect? Or take, uh, take, take Morocco or take uh, many of these countries. What is the practical impact that you can introduce this kind of change? that is going to change the fate, the future of Egypt, uh, which used to be the foremost, you know, secular, uh, going back in that many, many years now, now several decades. What is going to take, and yes, you need to make the effort, but do you think Egypt will succeed with the I best have, of intention? I have no doubt that one, if, he, if there is a vision, there is a will to make Egyptians feel that they are, and I, I keep saying when somebody is to say to me, but we are Muslims, we are Arabs. I say, no, no, no. Listen to what Taha 
Hussein said in 1938, he said, we have an Islamic dimension, but we are not the same like Bangladesh, for instance. Okay? Yes. We have a common factor with the Arabs, which is the language. But Egypt and Yemen are not identical. Yeah? We are in Africa. Literally, we are in Africa. Yeah. Of Zimbabwe, okay? So what Taha Hussein said, and I would make it the, the spine and the core of the campaign, that we are a product of our geographic location. We are Mediterranean. Arabic, but not we are fully Arabs. We have Muslims, but we are not 100% Islamic. So what are we? We are Egyptians. This is what Lutfi said in 19... Well, there's been, been a clear distinction over the years. Over the side. I have no question. I agree with you. You can work not on it, not by words, by education. Make people feel proud. Teach them the kings of ancient Egypt. Teach them that Egypt 5,000 years ago had geometry and engineering that was extremely perfect and sophisticated. Make them proud of it. But people are not proud of it. Why? They were not helped to be proud of it. And they are instead proud of something else. They call what happened to Egypt in, 19, in, in the year 642. When, when, when the first Arabs and Muslims invaded Egypt, they call it al-Fatih, not the equation. Okay? Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. So al-Fatih, the positive word, yeah? No, it was invasion. <laughs> mm -hmm. And of it is to call it invasion. <laughs> right, we right. Made it. Al-Fatih means something positive, yeah? Yes. So I believe that a lot can be done. Providing that there is a vision, where do you want to go? Do you want to be part of the Islamic world or the Mediterranean? I, for me, if, if, if I have the authority, I, I say we are part of the Mediterranean. Our history is part of the Mediterranean. Our culture is Mediterranean. And we will make everything to serve this purpose. Okay? And we are in the year 2022. We are not in the year 700. And we are part of humanity and we want to be linked to humanity. This sounds uh, very difficult in some ears, but I don't think it is. I don't think, do you know for, for me, what rescued Tunisia from Ghanoushi, the women of Tunisia? Yes, yeah, I know what yes. it is, yes. Product of Borgeba, you know? I used to go to Tunisia a lot and, and speak at the university, yeah? Yeah. And hear you, the, the, the women of Tunisia are much advanced than the women of Egypt or any other Arabic-speaking country. Why? Because they were given the right curricula. And these are the ones who made it difficult for Ghanoushi to turn it into a Pakistan or a Bangladesh, yeah? Exactly, yeah. The question today, and I mean, you know, uh, I can continue this discussion with you for days, not not hours. But uh, just a final thoughts from your perspective. Um, so we are seeing now, on the one hand, uh, you mentioned Saudi Arabia trying to reform. Tunisia is a good example of that. 
On the other hand, you have countries like Turkey, like Iran, and there's these competing forces on both sides. Uh, to me, the, the, the reformers are not winning as yet. Do you agree with that premise? They are not winning, absolutely. You are absolutely <laughs> they are not right. winning. And, and so, so what, what, what um, again, just final thought on your part. What is, is there any, anything that dramatic, significant can be said, can be done to begin to change that, to, to, to change the trend? That is, need, that is happening today. You need to see the efforts that are made to fight terrorist act, equal efforts made to fight terrorist ideas. Very little is done, very little. Right. And I'm sure that the international community is concerned. There is a degree of concern, but it's sufficient. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that with, with good work from America and from Europe, regimes of third world could be directed to, instead of making all of your efforts to counteract terrorist activities, do half of it to counteract ideas and, and transfer this from general to particular. I mean, to, to general, yeah? We need to convert this to policies. What do we have to do to counteract the, the mentality that produces the terrorists? The terrorists that go from Manchester to Syria to kill people is not more dangerous than the imam who educated them. I agree with you. You know, you be very well distinguished between the, those who advocate and those who follow. And to advocate, you have to deal with them on their level. Uh, and to follow, you need to deal with them by improving their socioeconomic conditions in order to, um, you know, make it uh, unnecessary and undesirable for them to follow uh, the, the preaching of the uh, those who advocate uh, extremism and uh, terrorism. Uh, Tarek, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. And I do really hope that we do it one more, you know, talk again uh, about this and different subjects. And more than that, I'm very helpful to see you in person. And I oh, shall uh, soon, sooner than later. God bless you, my dear friend. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.